Hello and welcome back to Searching the Sacred. I'm Jason Steffenhagen and you are about to listen to part 10 in our series on the book of Ruth. And as we've been mentioning all along, if you have not yet become a patron of this podcast by going to patreon.com and searching Searching the Sacred to become a patron for just a dollar a month or more to get the discussion guides, you should do so. These discussion guides are great. They're helpful. It's a way for you to continue the conversation that started through this series. Also, just in case you are curious as how these recordings have come about, Steph and Lisa and I basically sat down for two-hour chunks of time and hit record, and we just talked through an entire chapter for about two hours. And then we broke that up into multiple episodes. And so what you are about to hear is kind of the first chunk of this longer conversation on chapter four that will round out the book of Ruth. So if it feels like we kind of end in the middle of a conversation, it's because this is the middle of a conversation. So I hope you enjoy part 10 and then come back for parts 11 and 12 as we close out the book of Ruth. All right, let's get it started. All right, so we are jumping into the final chapter of the book of Ruth, and Lisa's going to read verses 1 through 6. Take it away, Lisa. Chapter 4, Robert Alter's translation once again. And Boaz had gone up to the gate, and he sat down there, and look, the redeeming kin of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. And he said, turn aside, sit down here, so-and-so. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the town elders and said, sit down here. And they sat down. And he said to the redeeming kin, Naomi, who came back from the plain of Moab, sold the parcel of the field that was our brother Elimelech's. And as for me, I thought I shall alert you, saying, acquire it in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of my people's elders. If you would redeem, redeem. And if you will not redeem, tell me that I may know that there is none except you to redeem and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem. And Boaz said, on the day you acquire the field from Naomi, you will also require Ruth the Moabite to raise up the name of the dead man on his estate. And the redeeming Kim said, I cannot redeem lest I spoil my estate. You redeem my obligation of redemption for I cannot redeem. We heard the word redeem quite a bit there. There's a bunch to unpack. I'm curious what stood out to you both as you listened and read this little section. I think reading so-and-so was a little bit like, oh, wait. <laughs> I'm sure it doesn't say so-and-so, but what is that? Because that felt, I don't know. I don't know if I've noticed it before until it was written like that. I love that Alter translated Mr. So-and-so. <laughs> That's funny. That's really funny. I was struck by the idea of seemingly a bunch of guys sitting around deciding the fate of these women. And it reminded me of watching like something like Game of Thrones or something where it's the patriarchy just doing what they do regardless of who it affects and how it affects them and everyone just has to go along with it. And it's really interesting to see this, especially because so much of this book has been about the agency of Naomi and then the agency of Ruth. 
taking their lives into their own hands and really charting a course. And yet they find themselves in this system where kind of the big moment of the story, like what's going to happen in the future? How's it going to go forward? They're nowhere to be found. They're barely mentioned by name. And it's mostly tied to Elimelech, who we haven't really heard about since the very beginning when he, for lack of a better way of putting, jacked it all up by leaving in the first place. So, yeah, that's what stuck out to me. I know it's kind of loaded, but there it is. Well, and not only is their fate in the hands of these men, the main man that their fate is in the hands of is Mr. So-and-so. So this is really like, it's a well-written narrative, actually, to like be at this position where you've seen the women with all of this autonomy and authority really kind of pushing against the patriarchy. But then there's a moment where the system is set up where it's done in a certain way. And that certain way puts all of the power in the hands of Mr. So-and-so. And the Hebrew calls him Mr. So-and-so. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that idea of the whole Mr. So-and-so is such an interesting component. And we I, I would love to unpack it more with you guys and hear what you have to say. But my initial reaction to it is I can't tell if it's like the most subversive feminist text like ever in the sense of like, you know, it's so jacked up that the patriarchy can do this, that we're not even going to give it a name because it's just so obviously wrong. Or is it like the most oppressive part of the whole thing where it's just highlighting how the patriarchy is so in control that it's like, we don't even need to name this person. We all know that they're in charge because that's the way it is. I don't, so I don't know if it's a subversive text or if it's an oppressive text, but it's something. Um, well, let's, let's keep diving into those possibilities just by unpack, like putting the Hebrew on the table. So um, the first word is plony. Plony is a certain one, like a specified person. So it's it's a certain a certain someone is plony. Um, and I think that's then what the mister is. You know, like there's a specified, important, certain something to it. But then that's paired with almoni, which is um, Someone who is uh, concealed, somebody whose name isn't being given. Um, so it's someone. So it's a certain someone. Um, so Mr. So-and-so is sort of a play on, like, I think that's trying to get at how playful those words together sound. Like, Tony Almoni, it actually, like, rhymes and has a sound to it that's more like Mr. So-and-so. But it, it could also translate to something like a certain someone. Um, and there's probably a couple reasons that's happening. So what's the certain part? Who, what have we already known or been introduced to about who this person is in chapter three? We know that there's not just a redeemer. There are multiple. So well, what I feel like we're being cued into is that this is the other person. This is the person that probably has more of a right to redeem. I don't know if that's the right language, but like a right mm -hmm. to redeem the situation. They kind of get like first, like first dibs on. I don't know. Like maybe, I don't know. Like, is it, is yeah, it, I, I think I, I like the first here? dibs language. Cause that even sounds appropriately like frustrating, right? This guy gets first dibs. He's a closer relative. And so that's that certain part. He's not just a stranger. He's a particular person. Mr. <laughs> but we're also not given his name or relationship. And that's sort of 
odd in this situation. Like if you're telling the story for its historical value and it's a closer relative and you want to lay out all the specific history, you wouldn't just call him a certain someone. You would say the certain someone's name was blank and he was this relative of Elimelech and here's how he comes into the story. But there's a way that though we know he's the closer relative, he's also left unnamed. And so we're asked, we're being asked to think about the very thing that Jason said. Why would that be? What is the author trying to help us wrestle with or see? Because that's an intentional play that the author's doing, especially with words like plony almoni that are that are rhyming, that are playing on something. <clears throat> I have a theory about why he's left unnamed that'll that'll um that's a part of where the story goes, but that's probably not. My theory is probably not the only possibility. So I wonder what possibilities are already coming up to you right now for why he might be unnamed. Honestly, all I can think about is Steph. I can't wait to hear your theory. <laughs> okay. okay, I'll jump in and try to give a different thing before Steph gives her theory. <laughs> um, I, in some ways, I think about it like in terms of like, the pharaohs aren't named like we know it's a pharaoh but we don't know which pharaoh it is so like that actually happens a lot of times with people who hold power but i actually i feel like it's the invitation especially as like western american readers for us to step into that's that feels like that's the cue to step into like are you here Mm. like are you are you actually like is there a way that when we identify like our power and our privilege, like, cause it's, it feels like that's the place in the text. Like I would rather not sit in that position. I would much, there's other people I choose to be in this story. Cause I like, mm-hmm. but I do wonder sometimes like, Oh yeah. Like what happens when this is like us, like mm-hmm. when this is me in this situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I usually, I have to use a, a sense of imagination, right? I'm a woman. I wouldn't, ever be considered a redeemer in this text um but i do think there's an invitation because i do hold power and privilege now and what am i worried about losing it Mm. that's kind of like that's kind of my sense of what the guy's doing okay lisa's lisa's doing something brilliant as lisa often does of tying backwards and forwards in the story with possibilities for where why this guy is unnamed so to look backwards we can look at the book of exodus which the name of the book of exodus in hebrew is is shemot these are the names and the reason it's called these are the names is the book of exodus starts out by naming all of the people that were descendants of jacob that were in the land it lists all of their genealogies and then it goes further and like we are introduced to Moses and we hear his name, but the pharaohs are not named. And so they're doing this very intentionally subversive thing in the introduction of Exodus of naming all of the people who are a part of the oppressed group and not the people that are a part of the oppressive group. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how is it tying into that sort of subversive possibility of let's not name the person who has power here because of the way that pushes? Mm-hmm. Looking forward, it is a part of the tradition of teaching in parables, which Jesus does in the New Testament, which was a rabbinic tradition that exists before and after him. 
that whichever person in the parable is unnamed is the person you are meant to identify with and wonder about, which is an important thing to consider when we're told the parable of the Good Samaritan and the person who is unnamed is the person who's injured on the side of the road. So in the rabbinic parable tradition, that is our first person we're meant to identify with is not the savior, but the one who is injured and vulnerable. And so how might this be an invitation, especially often the parables say a certain man or a certain person. And here it's using some similar language of a certain so-and-so. How might this be a bit like a parable right now? What would we do if we were in this guy's position where these women have had all of this authority and strength and now their their future is in your hands? What are you going to do? Wow. That's good. That's good, Lisa. Well, I I don't think I came up with that on my own. <laughs> Pre- pretty sure that's a combination of some years with studying with Forty Orchards. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, if you're I, interested maybe... in signing up for a, a circle, <laughs> you're welcome to go to fortyorchards.org. Well, but I also, I mean, to me, part of how I think about that is like this is maybe zooming out a little bit for how we study scripture. Sometimes we've been told or or explicitly or implicitly not to trust ourselves when we're reading scripture, that we need to look to some authority to tell us how to interpret something. And I find in a lot of scripture circles that people's intuition is right on and can be backed up with scripture. Um, So Lisa, I don't know that you, you didn't seem conscious at that moment in time, just how cued into the text you were when you said both of those things, but they were completely cued into the text where the only thing I'm doing as a facilitator then is saying, here's where that is in the text. Your intuition is spot on. And what if we approach scripture more thinking, what if my intuition is spot on? What if I trusted it to be connected to the story that has happened and is happening and will happen? and wondered about those things that I intuitively was sensing. Part of me wants to be like, yes, and there are people that I really trust their intuition. (laughs) And then there's people that I really don't like their intuition because the lens through which they are reading everything is not one that comes across as loving or, or grace, you know, um, infused merciful in any way Mm -hmm. and so i think that's where like i'm like uh appreciate knowing what you think but (laughs) mostly so i know what we can deconstruct as opposed to using that as a point of construction or reconstruction well what if that's the importance of having the communal conversations like we have here on searching the sacred is that we're then bringing our intuition to a communal place instead of just sitting alone with our intuition. We're saying, Hey, I'm thinking this, I'm wondering about this. So hopefully it's a safe space where other people can, the room can be like, which I think is what's brilliant about the invitation to 40 orchards at 40 orchards.org because (laughs) you're welcome. Uh, Because what I heard you encouraging at first was trusting your intuition. And then I quickly jumped to when I read the Bible by myself. Mm -hmm. And because that's what I've been trained and encouraged to do all my life for, you know, all four good, healthy, you know, wanting little Jason to be the best Jesus follower possible. Um, And I mean that with, without the sarcasm that seems to be implied, 
Um, but trusting my intuition in those moments is a very different thing than trusting my intuition, like you said, where I could receive pushback or a question or encouragement. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think it's that, I mean, the thing is, is that if I study scripture with somebody who completely disagrees with me and their intuition says something different, it's not my job to convince them that I'm right and they're wrong. <laughs> it, but it, what it can do if I let it is it's an invitation for me to listen to like my own sense of things. And, and like, well, what, like, what, why does that make me feel a certain way? What have I learned? Where in the text does it like either support that or dissent from that? Mm-hmm. Or, cause I, I don't know. In some ways I feel like it's part of the thing that makes the Bible for lack of, a, I, I would say magical for me where it comes alive, it breathes, it does a thing. Is because it does allow not just an interpretation, it allows multiple interpretations. And I don't know if we're ever going to have like the moment of like, this is it. <laughs> this is what it means. Much as we would like it, it's not there. So there is something about allowing some space for like dissension. And then for myself to like, what does it refine in me? What's, what am I going to like? how will I live differently or why, what does that make me do? Cause in some ways it's the, if it's supposed to be merciful kindness and loving, am I, is my response towards that other thought that, that right. <laughs> am I living the thing that I think that it's telling me to do? I don't know. Like it gets complicated, but there is, there's some, I've discovered that it's actually helpful to have people who think very differently than me in a room. Cause they help like challenge and like make me, work at it a little bit. Yeah, that's good. And maybe that's even here in the passage that that we're in, because this isn't a conversation that just happens between Boaz and this Mr. So-and-so. Boaz brings it out to the city gates to be witnessed. And it's witnessed in particular by these 10 elders. Um, and those 10 elders, um, there's a, a, the Jewish tradition is that when there's a decision to be made, you need to um, bring together a quorum and that quorum is a minion. It's 10 people. So if you wonder where the word minion comes from, M I N Y A N. So he gathers a minion, uh, which interestingly enough, I'm actually not sure that existed as a law yet at that point. Cause it's, um, it's in the Talmud, um, which I believe is going to date after this book, but, but it's tied in here. He's got 10 elders um, they're all at the city gates, which is a place where both commercial kinds of trading would happen, but also where judicial things would happen. So he takes this conversation public and he brings together the elders and he calls this guy over and he says, all right, here's the situation. What would you like to do about it? All witnessed. So um, he's disclosing to this um Gaal, um, Gaal, Goel, um, that's Redeemer. That's going to be said several times. And the principle of that Redeemer um, is really this idea that um, a near relative, uh, we talked about this a bit with chapter three, it's a near relative that can rescue somebody in the family who has gotten down on their luck. Um, So that can be a way to rescue them from enslavement. And that term is actually used of God when God rescues the people from slavery in Egypt. 
Um, it can redeem property that has been sold off. Um, it can actually also involve kind of taking vengeance against somebody who's been wronged. So it's got, there's some breadth to the term. But the idea is that the nearest relative is in charge of rescuing a family that's down on their luck, which is why we have Elimelech's name come back into play, because all of that happens through the male family line. So this is whoever is the closest relative to Elimelech has the responsibility of redeeming Elimelech's property and name for Naomi. So Boaz is pretty brilliant, I think, in how he lays this out because he brings Mr. So-and-so forward, says, hey, Naomi's come back. Uh, there's this piece of land that was Elimelech's. You're the closest person. If you're willing to redeem it, redeem it. If you don't want to redeem it, let me know because I'm the one who comes after you in line to redeem it. And so what does the guy say in verse um, four, at the end of verse four? I'll do it. Sure. Why is his answer yes? Who doesn't want, want more land? <laughs> who doesn't want more land? At this point, the guy, it's sort of like that story of, you know, some long lost relative who left you money in their will. Like, oh, sure. I'll take the land. Excellent. Thanks, Boaz. It's very different to think of this as a public story. Mm -hmm. Like to think about I mean, because not only, okay, so yes, there's these 10, the minion, the minion is there, big players are there, but there have got to be other people like watching the whole thing play out too. Like, this is not just like, this is not behind closed doors in a big building. This is like at the gate. This is wide open public display. Like you, uh, <laughs> I mean, you don't have a lot of time to think it through. Mm-mm. But I don't know. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's very public. So whatever choice you're making, whatever thing you're saying, whatever thing you're doing, everybody's got eyes on it and is going to talk about it. I'm guessing like it's small town, small town, big gate. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Everybody knows everybody's business in a small town, especially if it's happened at the gate. Right? Especially Bethlehem. Just wait until you ride into a donkey pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> so then, so the guy's like, yeah, sure. I'll take the land. And then Boaz continues. Oh, one more thing. I kind of picture him, <laughs> him saying one more thing. When you acquire the property from Naomi um, and from Ruth the Moabite, you must also acquire the wife of the deceased so as to perpetuate the name of the deceased upon his estate. Now, what does the guy say? I can't redeem it without damaging my own inheritance. Okay, let's dig into that response. Why does he switch from a quick yes to a no with that language? We don't know a lot about this person, cause we, mainly because we don't get their name. But I'm my guess, and you both are going to correct this in a matter of minutes, is that this person, because there's the redemption of the family line, means that we're trying to produce an heir through Ruth that will then become a legitimate son of this person, which will then inherit not only Elimelech's property, but then would also share potentially in the inheritance, 
that's been passed down through this Mr. So-and-so, and that would impact other people, other kids, other, you know, family members that are living off that land. I mean, the, these lands aren't just like, you know, a husband, wife, and their two kids. Like we're talking like loads of people, loads of other family members living off that land. He's just the one in charge of the family line that's kind of shepherding the whole thing. And so bringing on a new heir and a new line could probably, yeah, mess all that up. So it wouldn't necessarily mess up what he already has, but okay. it does. See, I told you we were going to correct me in a matter of seconds. So, But, yeah, but this goes go. right back to the communal piece, right? <laughs> I know. That's why we're keeping it in the podcast instead Keep, of cutting it out. I could save myself a lot of egg real. on the face. However... <laughs> But I'm proxy for all of the, you know, rubes out there that don't know any better. But it's also, but you're also not wrong because what you're naming is this is a man of authority who has land and family already, who perhaps is worried about something in that. Um, and, and you're doing kind of what Lisa named about, like, you're putting yourself in his position. What do I have to lose? What do I have to gain if I say yes to this? In the first scenario, before I knew there was a Ruth, all I knew is that I would gain land. Now that there's a Ruth, what it means is I gain nothing. Because what my job is now as the Redeemer is to marry Ruth, have a child with Ruth, and that child will inherit the land. And that child will be in the other person's lineage, not mine. So it was now my job to have a child that will not be a part of my lineage who will get land that I have to tend to that won't go to my kids or me. I have nothing to gain anymore. The whole damn point. Which is the whole damn point. (laughs) Like, it's real lovely when you get the chance to get land from a person who is widowed, who doesn't have anybody dependent on that person. Like if Naomi had nobody, if Ruth had not come back with her, it would just be Naomi that they would have to care for. Take Naomi in, got the land, it's done. But it was never set up to be that. It was set up to be the space where we actually protect and continue to not accumulate all the things. It's not about accumulation. It just gets that way real fast. Because there's a way that we can manipulate care of others to be about our own accumulation. Absolutely. And the brilliance about how oh. this is, it takes okay. place. Say that again because we're dropping <laughs> we're dropping major bombs here and you guys are just skimming over them. It's the whole damn point. Why? Because of what you just summarized in a matter of like a phrase is that it's not about simple accumulation. It's about care for other people. Right. Because we can, if, if we had just, if the guy, when the guy said yes, what he thought is I bring Naomi into my household and care for her as this widow who has no one. And I get to take her land as a part of caring for her. So that's a way of care. That's about accumulation and where my motives can be all messy in that because I get a big thing out of it, even as I do this act of service. Because Ruth is here, it means that I get nothing out of it anymore because my job is to have a child with her that inherits the land 
and takes on the other guy's family name, not mine. So I do not get to acquire. My only role is to serve. Okay, but that, okay, but saying it like that, then my question is, God is named as redeemer. Like that's the conversation. Like God says, like, I'll redeem you out of Egypt. Like that's the the action. And I don't frequently hear language about like, it feels like there has to be a space where we are like, we are owned by God. Like we are, we are a possession. And maybe that's where part of my theology gets like, I don't know. I get uncomfortable. I get like wiggly about it because I'm like, I don't like being a possession. <laughs> I don't want to be possessed. <laughs> and but there, that's a lot of the language, but the way that you just said it makes me feel like maybe we're just, maybe that, Maybe there's some more ways to look at that, the action of God as redeemer. Well, I, I think that what you're hitting at and is really what has caused a lot of theological problems for Christianity for a long time is what do we do when the story is no longer about land? Because that because the concepts of redeemer in the Hebrew scriptures are have much to do about land, which also then makes sense when God is the redeemer out of Egypt because God is going to give them land. And there's a bunch of terms and when it's not about land, we've got to wrestle through then what is it about? What is it? How does this work itself out? Which is why people were confused when Jesus came. <laughs> it's why, because this is, it's twisting the idea of redeemer on its head in certain ways where it both makes sense when you read a story like Ruth and you hear about the sacrificial kind of nature that redeemer requires, but there's also a way it doesn't track supernaturally because uh, it's not, it's not land and it's not, it's, it's, it's our, it's something different. And so this is why people were mad that Jesus didn't give them their land back. Because even in being named a redeemer, that's what his role would be, is to get them their land back. That's not what he does. So my theory about why this guy is named Mr. So-and-so is because of the way that plays with the very thing he was afraid of. Because he wanted to protect his name. And he said no, because I want my inheritance to be in my name for my posture, my prosperity. And he is the person whose name we don't know in the book of Ruth. We know Elimelech's name. We know Elimelech's kids' names. We know Boaz's name. We know Ruth's name. The guy who was most concerned about his own legacy is the guy whose name we don't know. Oh, that's, that's interesting. So if we let her in the future being like, (laughs) I know how to tell this story. Well, that goes, I mean, we've talked about this before. Oral tradition was written down later. So at the point you can write, you write it down, you're choosing your words carefully and, and editing them. And so this isn't being told live time. This is being told in the future when an editor can say, you know what? We're going to leave that guy's name out. And (laughs) to that, so there's a, there's like a, ha ha, we got you, Mr protect your name now you don't have one throughout posterity and the rest of human history and then also if you look further down this whole book ends with the genealogy that doesn't go through Elimelech's line it doesn't go through Mahone or any of these uh, it, it 
it goes through Boaz. And so actually what, what kind of matters for the future of the house of Israel is less about what happened prior to Naomi and what actually happens because of Ruth and Boaz. And so it could simply be that they left it out because it really just doesn't matter. Which well, goes to your point of he thought he mattered so much, I need to protect my name. Actually, you matter so very little. Not only we're we not going to name you, the future king of Israel is going to come from these other guys. Well, you make a great point, and and I think this is another part we'll read later. It it should be Elimelech who's named in the genealogy, and he's not. Naomi gets named, but Elimelech gets left out. Um, and the whole point of the redeemer is that Elimelech's name doesn't get left out. But from where we've already been in the story, it feels kind of subversive and delicious <laughs> that it does become Boaz because Boaz is a name worth honoring and holding in in the legacy. But it's really not Elimelech. It would be one of the kids, right? Because mm-hmm. like they would have already inherited that land once dad died. So mm-hmm. really it's their it's it's not redeeming Elimelech. Or is it because Naomi's still alive? Well, what, what you would do traditionally is you would then, that child born of Ruth and Boaz actually gets, if you write out a genealogy, gets attributed to Elimelech and Naomi. Oh, okay. That both of them are playing like a go-between role. Or either that, or it would be attributed to Ruth and, um, I don't remember which son Ruth named, her son. or That Boaz's name would traditionally get left out. It would either be Elimelech's name or Ruth's first husband's name that would be put in. Because that's a part of redeeming that family tree and that family line. Well, because sometimes it's just not about the what you think it is. Right? Like that's what oh, that seems to be what happens all the time. Like doing the right thing doesn't mean that you get the, the outcome that you think was going to happen. Just means you did the right thing. If we, t- if we think about this as a parable, which was one of your possibilities, Lisa, for why he's unnamed, what is the, the lesson there for us and in doing the right thing? Um, like this guy who wants to protect his name and his legacy says no, but his name and legacy ends up forgotten. Like what's a modern example of, of that? Or what's a lesson for our lives in that between, between Boaz and Mr. So-and-so? I think we can get really caught up in Mr. So-and-so. I Like I can, or like trying to make Mr. So-and-so do the right thing, make the right decision. Like mm-hmm. we want Mr. So-and-so to do the thing that Mr. So-and-so is supposed to do. Um, instead of just like, if it's not them, then it's us. Mm-hmm. Then it's me. Like, in some way, like in some ways, we're not like we're not supposed to be the heroes of the story. It's not, it's not about being like the hero of the story or like I don't like because doing the right thing doesn't usually have like heroics involved. It's just usually you're just making small decisions, doing that stuff. But it sometimes is frustrating because you want like I th- I think about like in the ways that I sometimes have wanted a church to do something because I want the church to do it. Church should do it church's job (laughs) and sometimes it's just if i can see that and i can say that then i probably should make sure that i'm doing that Mm -hmm. with or without the church 
Ooh, okay. So that feels like you're taking this to say, who am I looking at to be a Mr. So-and-so that I'm trying to convince to do their job instead of doing what Boaz did and saying, if you don't want to do this, I'm next in line and I'm going to do it. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm having like two thoughts about this guy and like how it applies to us or how it impacts kind of like our context today like one is kind of similar to the orpa conversation like there's not like an overt this person was wrong horrible and cursed of the lord for this like at some level this was just part of the process like you can say no and it can go to the next person and there's no shame in that there's actually you know maybe even healthy thinking that could have been taking place you know um and so I appreciate that that's in there. Like, it's not all good, all bad in this case. It's kind of like we're just operating in the gray a little bit more with these characters and, and that we're making room for them to be human. I appreciate that. The other thing that I appreciate, it, and, I, and I think you guys are hitting on this as well, is that so much of like modern storytelling or even like ancient storytelling is so much about what you can do and acquire and like building your own legacy and building your own kingdom and, and look at all that I can do as opposed to what I think this story is getting at and what I think the human story actually should be is you are, you are here for a short time. You're a vapor and you are, you are preparing the way for what comes next. You are, you may be forgotten in that. You may not have your name written down in the history books. And and your job is to just do the most loving, self-sacrificial thing you can for those that come come next. And like I think of it like like parenting. I mean I spend so much time parenting. So much time. I could be like writing a book. I could be out, you know, helping people. I could be out doing other forms of empire building of the Jason brand or whatever you want to call it. I could do a lot of things with all of this time that I spend parenting. And yet, for some reason, I think parenting is one of those things that it's just like, there's there's nothing more you can that you're called to do than prepare them well for the world. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you don't, yeah, you might've built something really cool or you might've impacted something or you might've made your name great, but you're gone, you're a vapor. And what comes next after you, um, might not be ready for the world. Um, I don't know. And that, that's maybe, I don't know if I'm trying to toot my own horn here or not, but like, I, I don't know. There's just something like, I think about that every once in a while. Like, man, I, there's a lot I could do with my time, but I am showing up for these boys. And maybe that's the patriarchy coming through, right? Like historically men can choose what to do with their time and ignore their kids or not. And so like, maybe it is this weird situation that I get to even contemplate that idea. Um, but uh, anyway, what I, I what I hear is that, you know, part of what this book, what the theme of this book is over and over again is chesed, 
And Chesed looks at the next generation and says, I want goodness for your sake, not for my sake. I want, I want, I, I want good for you, not because of the way it attributes back to me. And parenting at its best, we look at our kids that way. I'm giving this to you for you, not for me. And plenty of parents, plenty of us have had therapy because of parents who parented us for themselves. Our kids will probably have therapy for the ways that we are still doing that because it's human. Totally. But when we're at our best selves, there is a way we're kind of thinking generationally, whether we're parents or just affecting the next generation through politics or whatever else we're getting involved in to say, can I end can I? Can I separate my own acquiring back to that piece of the conversation from this effort that for their sake? Um, do I think everything has to go back to me or be for my legacy and name? Or can I just show chesed to those who are coming next? I think that's what makes like, I could never be a politician. I mean, there's lots of, of difficulties in the political system but i think there's so many things that are that i would want to make happen that don't bode well for electing because they don't show their good to me in the next 2 years like real good takes longer than the election cycle and is built communally not towards stardom and so like to figure out how to actually achieve political good feels impossible to me most of the time because it it does i think the real good comes when it can't always be traced directly back to this person and this action in this time period it's bigger than that yeah i also think it's it matters that Boaz knows Ruth. That Boaz paid attention to her and spent time with her and seemingly has has seen the good in her. Um, like his, I mean, he is doing something that I would say is a little shady in terms of like he throws out Ruth Moabite. <laughs> He's not just saying Ruth. He is uh, he is u- using that. Um, but I do think it matters um, for how we see other people and um, to know like what's the I don't know. I just keep thinking about um, some of the guys that um, I work with who have been, I mean, they're in for life sentences, um, but they will get out. Like they will have served 20 some years. And a lot of times, like the question that's asked is if they'll be like, will people be okay with them being outside of prison? Like how to make a community okay and accept people who have done some really horrible things, but have also done a ton of work. But the only thing that I can think, like it's about getting to know somebody. It's about like getting to know them because then you have a better understanding of that. And it's not for everyone, like not everybody's gonna be comfortable with it. But I do think there is something about hearing the story, knowing the story that helps 
I mean, I think it helps Boaz know that I'm going to, if you aren't redeeming this, I'm doing it. Yeah. I think that ties in these first chapters so well. And like, especially the conversation we had around chapter two of Boaz was the kind of landowner that went out onto the land to meet the people who were gleaning through that proximity. He developed a relationship with Ruth through that relationship with Ruth. He saw her as more than that label or title of Moabite. And he saw that he wanted to do something to protect her and see her. And there's a way, and I, I don't know, I tend to, I really like Boaz. So I probably give him more credit than he deserves at certain points. But I even see him using that, like she's a Moabite, as a way to test. Like, I think he really cares for Ruth and he wants to make sure Ruth is well cared for. And so, if you are going to judge her for being a Moabite, I'm going to make that real clear right now that she is. And if you can't see past that, I can see past that. Or I don't know if see past is even the right language, but like, if that stops you from marrying her, then I don't want you to marry her because I, I, I can see who she is. I can see that she's that woman of valor that I named her as in chapter three. And you might, you probably can't. And he might be kind of playing his cards to try to make sure that he's the one. Thank you for listening to part 10 of our conversation, our dialogue, our discussion of the book of Ruth. We will be back next week with part 11 as we continue our journey through chapter four and finish out the book of Ruth with a 12th episode in a couple weeks. If you haven't had a chance to get the discussion guides, we encourage you to go to patreon.com, search Searching the Sacred, and there you will uh, find the discussion guides once you become a patron of this podcast. So look forward to having you as part of the team. Enjoy the rest of your week and stay safe out there.